Evan. Thank you, everyone, for worshiping. If you would, please grab your Bibles and turn to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 12. James, chapter 1, verse 12. Talking about remaining steadfast today. And in this word, steadfast, I hope to illuminate Paul's and James' meanings. That remaining steadfast is not standing for some sort of ideology or politics or even a worldly morality, the only way to remain steadfast, according to the scripture, is to be in the will of God. And the only way to know the will of God is to be in knowledge of the scripture. So we will go to James chapter 1, verse 12, and read together, Blessed is the man, or the one, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, as we go to your text now to understand why we go through trials and now today how, Lord, to endure them. Lord, teach our hearts this morning what it means to be steadfast on your word, to be immovable on the good doctrine that we have heard from the apostles brought from you and now these written words given to us in our Bibles. Lord, to be steadfast, I truly believe this morning in our 21st century world, is to not move off of your word no matter how hard they push us, no matter how long they test us, no matter how long they sneer and jeer and say that we are fools and that we need to grow up and get with the times. Lord, let us remain immovable upon your word. Let us remain in concrete upon your will. Lord, the doctrine that you have given in your words, Lord, let us stay there forever and let our hearts and minds not wander away from the good things you have given us. Lord, lead our spirits back to your words so that we may know and fulfill the will of our God. We thank you, Lord, and all God's people say, amen. James is writing once again to a group who's in a desert area, who are experiencing much persecution from the Romans and the pagans on the other side, pushing them almost into the sea. And they're trying to exist. They're trying to carve out an existence in this desert, sandy area. And James is writing to encourage them, stand your ground. Don't be moved off of the things you heard from Christ and from us. James is writing as the pastor of the first New Testament church. In fact, we talk so much about being a New Testament church and why churches are not a New Testament church and what the standard is for a New Testament church. But here we have the pastor of the first New Testament church. It's proven, it's a given, and he's given us an entire book, and the answers are within. How do we be a New Testament church? Remain steadfast. But the question becomes, to what? Because it's easy to remain steadfast to culture, but culture changes. It's easy, it's easy to remain steadfast to my country, but my country will change and has changed. There is only one thing that will remain steadfast and will not change for you, and it's why it's presented on this altar in front of you. This word is what you should remain on. If you do not stand your ground, you will be swept away into darkness, but to stand is to stand on the Scripture, not your own power, for your own power will be washed away. It'll be taken over by someone more powerful than you. But the word will not. The word will never foul. It'll never bow. It'll never go away. It will never be destroyed. And no one can take it from you. 
I was watching a sermon by a pastor who was visiting Christians in China. And in China at the time, I think it was a three-year cycle in prison if you were caught with Bibles. And uh, he had given out some Bibles in this small group, and this elderly Chinese woman, had, they didn't have enough, and so she gave hers away. And he was wondering, oh, I wonder why she doesn't want one. But when they started reading Second Peter, she was mouthing the words because she had it memorized. And when she, he asked her, how did you memorize the Bible so easily and quickly? She said, you have a lot of time in prison for three years to memorize the Bible. And he said, don't they confiscate the Bible? And she said, oh, yes, Christians sneak in the Bible written on scraps of paper. And he said, well, won't they take that if they find it? And she said, oh, yes, that's why you must commit it to memory as soon as possible because they cannot take what's on your mind and in your heart. And he said, I came back to America where Bibles, we have so many that we throw them away. And he said, I felt the pressure and the weight of what I'd seen. Thomas Constable says, Christians are in a constant danger of being swept downstream by the currents of an ungodly culture. And I really agree with that. They are also prone to let the truths they know and the relationship they enjoy with God grow cold. They need to vigorously hold on to what they have been taught by the servants of God. If you would, in your Bibles, turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and we will deal with this issue of growing cold. But the first issue, and if you take notes, you can put this as number one, to stand your ground is not to become cold in your relationship with God. Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13. As you're turning there, I'm going to lay a little thesis statement before you on growing cold. It is my belief that no matter the persecution on the outside, no matter the battles external that you will fight or face, there is no greater battle than your flesh battling your spirit within your soul. It's right here. And the reason I think that is this. No matter the torture or pain or death the world may try to put you through, for the Christian, even death is the escape to the holy place of God. The flesh however, is with you 24-7 until that escape of death. Even a worldly enemy has to regroup. Even they have to reload and rearm and refuel and come back at you. But your flesh never leaves. It never stops attacking. It is there all the time, 24-7. It even works, I would submit, in your dreams. We call them nightmares because the flesh never stops. Matthew 24-9 it begins with, they will deliver you up to tribulation. Are we there? And put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Cyprian, there's a great book called The Lapsed. Cyprian, about almost 1,800 years ago, they had great persecution in the church. They come in, the Christians, and the persecution goes away. But Christians who had given up, who had, had apostatized, had said, I don't believe in Jesus, or had even given up other Christians, were now trying to repent and come back into the church, and those who had not given up were trying to deal with how to let these people back in. That is to simply say, if persecution came, and I apostatized and said, God isn't real, just don't torture me, but I not only did that, but I gave up you and your family, and you were hurt by it, how would you feel coming to church with me on Sunday morning? That would be difficult, wouldn't it? That would be hard. And they had that issue, and there was forgiveness, and the church wanted to forgive, but sitting there every Sunday morning with the person who caused your child's death, that's a hard thing to do. You will be betrayed. You will hate one another. 
verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Church, I'm going to submit to you that because of social media, there has never been a greater time for false prophets than now. Because all anybody has to do is go on the phone, the other thing you have with you 24-7, and access or even preach this false prophecy, preach these false messages of evil and hatred and bigotry, and claim it's from God, and lead many astray. And why does it feel like so many are led astray today? Because the false message is in the root of our culture. The idea that truth is relative for you. That if you want to decide to jump off the building and flap your wings and you'll be a bird, we all ought to say, yeah, go for it. But it's not the truth. The standard of truth is God. And these prophets lead many astray because they come in with a message that sounds good. It sounds right. Or it's exciting. I did this with my Sunday school class. False prophets are often never boring. If preaching sounded like this, and I preached like this every Sunday in Matthew 24, verse 9, you'd start to get a little bit like, okay, let's, let's go. Your flesh would, and even the spirit would be like, all right, give me the verse, I want to know. False prophets almost never come that way. They're dynamic. They're exciting. They have the words that you think you need. And they speak of power that you can harness, power that you can claim, things that you can do to change your life around. And they'll say things like, do you want to stay in this hurt you're in? Do you want to stay in this pain you're in? Come with me and come out of your hurt and pain. They're just shy of the words of Satan in Genesis 3. Did God really say? It's the doubt they will put upon God's word is the evidence of false prophet. The evidence of false prophet. The evidence of false teacher. The reason we know certain groups and certain people and certain men and women who get up and speak and preach are false because their message goes against the word of God. And the Christian is led by the Holy Spirit not to allow that to happen, not to listen to it. If you ever have a time to get up and walk out of a place, it's when the person goes off the word and begins to preach their own message and make themselves Lord and ask you to worship them. This is the time to stand up and say no. No. But look what happens because of false prophets. False prophets arise and lead many astray. And because of this, verse 12, because of lawlessness, why does lawlessness take place? Because we have no true message to guide the flesh. We have no true law to keep people in check. We have no real power of the Spirit because the gospel is not preached. People are not saved. And they begin to practice lawlessness. They begin to hurt, steal, cheat, lie, rape, murder, kill. And because of this, it'll be increased, and the love of many will grow cold. It is difficult, even as a Christian, to endure lawlessness, especially over a period of time. I have watched good, good people, good Christians, good preachers, good ministers get burnt out and leave it because of the lawlessness that they deal with every day, of the constant criticism which has no constructive element to it, it's all based on opinion. None of it's based on the word. They're criticized on speaking style and not the message that they're preaching. And eventually they leave. But even worse, 
the lawlessness that comes in the violence and in the forms of abuse and the PTSD you're dealing with week in and week out, because of this, it's easy to grow cold. One of my biggest issues in ministry is at funerals because I've been to so many or I've preached so many or I've buried little children in little coffins hardly bigger than your dining room table. It's difficult to maintain the love in that moment because my flesh has grown cold. And there are times when to keep from weeping at night over dead children, I'll just, I'll just put it out of my mind and get it away from me, but that leads to coldness. And when you get so cold that you cannot minister, you're in danger of burning out. You're in danger of losing the very reason you're there for the job, which is to help people who are mourning and weep with those who are weeping, as Jesus said. False prophets lead to lawlessness. Lawlessness leads to Christians giving up, and Christians giving up leads to the kingdom of heaven being stagnant. This is not our calling. I wrote in my notes here, stand firm on the cause of Christ. If what you are trying to be firm on is not Christ, then it's going to fail. It's going to crack, and that foundation is going to break and fall. If you don't find your place in the Word, you will find failure. But if you find it in the Word of God, you will find the success, not because of your strength, but because of God's. Find your place in the Word. You're not called to stand up for the values of humanity. Humanity has no value unless God has given it to them. And that's the truth. You can't fix the world. There's one answer, one antidote to the poison infecting our world, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything else will not and does not work. I've seen it tried. I've even made the mistake of trying it myself to modify behavior. Because I can do that, and I can get it sometimes. I can get somebody to act right. I can get somebody to sit in church and behave. And their soul is rotten. They're a worshiper of Satan and a messenger of evil. And we can get them to behave long enough to get through Sunday morning service. That's not what we're called to do. That is not what we are called to do. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end. Now that word there, I think there's a couple of meanings. Number one, the end of a certain time. There might be a certain period of trial or persecution in you. There might be a certain period where you have to endure until the end. Have you had that happen? Maybe it's physical, maybe it's spiritual, but man, I had to reach the end. And only when I got to the end did I look back and see why God had brought me through it. But there's another ending here, the true end. The end where either your soul will spring free of this body in death, or the Lord will return before that and meet you in the air, as Paul says. This is the end where you will be saved. This word saved here is a reference to your salvation, but it's a reference to the culmination of that salvation. It's a reference to the final wedding feast where God will gather all his children, set his son at the right hand, and now declare, let the feast begin for no longer will my children be led away. No longer will they be tortured and persecuted by the world or from their own flesh. Now they're with me and be with me forever. Stand firm because coldness is at the door. Spiritual coldness is the enemy. And your flesh wants nothing more than spiritual coldness. It loves that state for it gets to run rampant and free in your life and cause all sorts of damage and harm. In James, he 
It talks about standing and receiving the crown of life. If you would, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you take notes, this is the second point. What is the crown of life? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes some of the most famous passages he's ever written. He is on his way to the gallows and the beheading. Church history is not exactly sure how they executed Paul. They just know that the Romans did in around 70 AD in between the years. They know they executed him then. Church history reports Paul running to the chopping block and willingly laying his head down for the Roman to execute him. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, he's writing to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. He's writing from a jail cell. And he says this in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's reached the end of his ministry. No longer will Paul get to go into a city and preach. No longer will Paul pen letters. Many scholars believe this is the final letter based on these words. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Christians, two important things here. Number one, you are called to fight. And let's leave the world out for a second. Let's just deal with you and I. Who am I fighting every day? Me. I wake up and look in the mirror and there's the guy ruining my life. There's the one making the mistakes and falling to the temptations and being arrogant, and he's the one who doesn't listen. And that's the guy I got to take hold of. That's the guy I got to take captive. That's the guy I have to restrain so the spirit can do its true work. The good fight is restraining your flesh. Because if you do not restrain your flesh, it will run rampant and you will fall. A good fight. And why is the fight good? It's good because of faith. The fight is good because of faith. We are not called to fight the bad fight, which is politics, which is ideologies and theologies and moralities and all these other things. The good fight. What's worth it? It's not worth it to behavior modify and dump money into things that have no spiritual eternal value. It's not the only thing that's worth it is the gospel. The only good fight is the gospel. The only race that has a real finish line is the gospel. And when Paul says, I kept the faith, it's because he never moved off the message of the gospel. Even when all the other Jews wanted him to go back to circumcision, he said, no. Even when all the people said, we'll fund your ministry, we'll give you all this money, we'll send you to Asia Minor, we'll send you to China, we'll send you all over the world if you just do it what we want. And he said, no. I'd rather go to prison and die by Roman execution, then give up the true gospel of Jesus. That we would be so bold. And why? Verse 8. Look what this good fight leads to. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which God, the Lord, the righteous judge, you were in Sunday school, you know where I got that from, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, not only to me, but all who loved his appearing. Paul just said God was going to give him an award. You take that statement by itself, that sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? Like, really, Paul, you're going to get an award in heaven? Like, you know, like, like you're some, something special, right? But this is the same guy who said, I'm the chief of all sinners. So this award must not be based on Paul. This award is based on God, the righteous judge, who's awarding Paul what? 
The fact that he fought the good fight of the gospel. The fact that he did not give up and fall to the easy method, which is tell people what they want to hear, receive lots of praise of men, and go home at night and do what you want. He doesn't. In fact, Paul, who is never depicted as having a home to go back to, no place of rest or sanctuary or safety. The same man who, when they stoned him in the city and they drug him out and left him for dead, when he came to his senses, at that point, I would call it a day. I would say, that was a good work day this day. I preached, they stoned me with rocks, I, I didn't die, I'm going to go home. <laughs> he gets up and runs back into the city to keep preaching the gospel. This is the crown of life. This is the award God will give you. Not just to him, but what does he say? Verse 8, to all who loved his appearing, to all who love Christ. Notice it didn't say was perfect. Notice it didn't say who went to church every Sunday or every time the doors were open. Notice he didn't say who read every word of the Bible every week. No, those who loved Christ, because that's the standard. The standard is not perfection. The standard is love. And God did it that way because only he is perfect. But only he is love, and that's the standard he's put on you and I. Verse 9, look what he says here. Do your best to come to me soon. This is a man in pain. This is a man who is being persecuted, who is in prison, who is beaten, possibly daily. And he writes to Timothy, his young son in the faith, the one he raised, please, Timothy, come to me. I need your help. I need your help. And why does Paul need his help? We're going to have to go even a little darker than I've been preaching so far. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, next verse. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, who is mentioned in two other books, he's mentioned in Colossians 4.14, and in the book of Philemon, which only has the one chapter, verse 24, as a servant of Paul, a servant of God, a fellow worker in the ministry, he praises Demas in these two books and said, he was with me. He fought the good fight with me. He ran the race with me. But look what happened. Something has caused Demas in 2 Timothy to leave Paul and go and be in love with this present world, this same world that the prodigal son was in love with. Demas has run off from Paul and gone to the pig pen, but he never comes back. Paul goes on to mention Crescius going to Galatia, Titus, to Dalmatia, doesn't give any indication that they've left him, Titus especially with his letter from Paul. They went to do ministry. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. This could be a reference to John Mark, the one that Paul had his dispatio with and had to leave for a while, but eventually was brought back. For he is very useful to me in ministry. People have left Paul so alone. He's writing to Timothy, who's in another place pastoring, and says, you got to come see me because I'm reaching the end, and I'm afraid I'm going to give up. I'm afraid I'm going to give up. Demas has left me. He used to be with me. Two other letters, he was with me. We served together, we loved together, we bled together, and he's gone. He's gone. And I've had this happen. I've had friends in ministry for more than a decade now who, through a series of events, are suddenly not with me anymore. Who had left me. And what do you do in that moment? 
if you trust in these worldly friendships, they may fail you. If you trust in another human being, they will fail you. If you trust in me, I will fail you. Look what Paul says. Verse 12. Tychius I've sent to Ephesus. Verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troyes. It's cold in the jail cell, and Paul's writing for a jacket. That's where he's at. Everyone has left him alone. He's in danger of growing cold. Also the books, and above all the parchments. I love this little statement. What does Paul want parchment for? I submit to you it's to keep writing. It's to keep writing. I believe Paul sent many other letters that were not inspired by the Holy Spirit just as a pastor. He was ministering. I bet Timothy got other letters. History does reveal that a little bit. There were other letters he sent to him to encourage him. Not scripture because those were preserved. But bring me the parchments because I'm growing cold. I need a jacket. I need you to come be with me and warm me. But my great concern is still for the brothers and the sisters. And the only ministry I have left is my pen and this letter. Even in the midst of great darkness and great coldness, all he wants is to keep spreading the message of God. Verse 14, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm, but the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And this is true, my friends. God will repay. People will hurt you. They'll leave you. They'll despair you. They'll stab you in the back even. But God will repay. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Dwayne Lifton says this, Paul's need for Timothy was intensified by the defection of Demas, the traitor who instead of loving the Lord's appearing, as Paul did, loved the world instead. He was mentioned in Colossians and Philemon, but he deserted Paul to embrace the safety and freedom and comfort and fleshly pleasure of Thessalonica. Even close friends will abandon you and leave you. The only way to remain steadfast is in Christ. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Have you ever felt that way? I am alone in this fight. There is no one with me. I'm standing in this battle alone. I have no fellow soldier to help me, and the enemy is numerous, and they are coming, and they will overwhelm me. Even in this moment, Paul says, don't charge it against them. He's echoing Jesus' words in Luke 23 on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me. Who stood by Paul when no one else would? God. Who was there when no one else was there? The Lord. And who will be there for you when no one else is there? God. But the Lord stood by me. And what did he do? He strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul is still worried about the gospel. He's still worried about lost souls. What he wants is for Gentiles to be saved even more than his own life. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And I would want that. And we would all want that. In danger of destruction, be rescued. But for the reason Paul says, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me into the safety of his heavenly kingdom. He's talking about his death. Paul is describing his death as being rescued from evil deeds and being brought safely into the kingdom. 
for this to happen, God is going to kill Paul. And that's what Paul is overjoyed at. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Christian, this is the place you and I find ourselves. You might be the only one standing. You might be the only one in a family or a church or even a ministry or a huge convention. You might be the only one standing for what is right. Even then, God may let you die. See, a good ending to Paul's story in human terms would be Peter gathering a band of merry men and bust him out of prison, Ocean's Eleven style. Repelling through the roof like Mission Impossible and going, come on, Paul, grab on, we're getting out of here. We would love that. Our flesh would love that. But that's not God's ending to the story. God's ending, he doesn't even record the death Paul is talking about. In the book of Acts, it ends with Paul in prison, writing to the churches to encourage them. Not even Paul's death is mentioned, for it does not bring as much glory to God as his message of the Holy Spirit. Dwayne Lifton says again, Paul was ready to die and meet God and knew he would receive a crown instead of judgment. He was sure of this because of grace in his Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, are you trusting in grace today? Because the only way to remain steadfast today is in grace. The only way to remain steadfast is in the love and mercy of God. If you try it any other way, it will fail you. And I'm afraid for you that it may go on for a long time, even a lifetime, of trying and failing and wondering why God has not moved because it wasn't built on His Son. Who was lifted up as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness? Who was put on the cross and magnified in death so that you could be magnified in life? Jesus. The Bible is a culmination of the story about Christ. It's not about you and I. That's why Paul's death's not even mentioned. He was one servant in one blip in one way. And he understood that. It's often been said that Paul in heaven will be in the front row, close to God, and the rest of us will be in the back. And if that is indeed how God does it, I'm sure that may be true. But if Paul were here, I think he would say, you don't realize that doesn't matter. To be in the presence of God, there will be no hierarchy. For there is only one place and one focus of worship. Him and Him alone. Paul is about to die. There is no escape from the end that is quickly coming to him. But he fought a good fight. He ran a good race. He finished well. Because he stayed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus said, don't let anybody rob you of the simplicity of my message? The Jews and the Pharisees with all the laws. What do we have now? Nothing but all the laws. We have more information and more ability to communicate than ever before. And where has it gotten us? More divided than we've been in a long time. Paul finished well because he finished on the gospel. If you would, turn to John chapter 16, verse 27. The end of James in verse 12 says, Those who will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him, the love of God is given to you freely, without price, without merit, without any necessity on your part to obtain it. God loves you with a perfect love. 
Look at the words of Jesus talking about this love between the Father and all of us. John 16, 27. For the Father, the Creator, the preeminent one, the Master, the Lord, the Savior, for the Father Himself, this is a personal idea, a personal communication. This is not a government official or president or even king telling you what to do. This is a father-child relationship for the Father Himself, not a proxy, not some other messenger, not some other person. The Father Himself loves you. And this word love here, that Greek agape, is this unconditional love. This love that doesn't matter what you did or what the hurt or how you murdered or even how you killed. I love you. And I will go on loving you. And I will forgive you in that love. Even 70 times 7. For the Father himself loves you. Why? Look at the word because. So we have cause and action happening now. God himself loves you. Action. Because, here's the cause of the action. You, we, have loved me. Because you and I love Jesus, the Father can love us. Everything is built on the Son. Everything is built on the Savior. God has given Jesus preeminence over all creation. He has lifted him high. He's magnified the Son and the Trinity for you and I to love. Because you have loved me and you have believed that I came from God. What does Romans 10, 9 say? The greatest, one of the greatest verses on salvation. If you want your kids to be saved, teach them this verse, right? Romans 10, 9. For if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. A certainty. Not a question mark. Not if Jesus gets around to it. Not if Satan slips up and lets you go by accident. No, certainty. You will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who worships God in spirit and truth will be lifted up when Jesus is lifted up. From, even from death, the grave will let forth all who have already died. For the Father loves you because you love Jesus. And you love Jesus because you believe that he is God. If you're struggling with anything else today, or you're wondering how to grow as a Christian, how do I get where I can be like Paul? How do I get where I can sit in a jail cell and still care about others, not myself? John 16, 27 is your answer. God loves you because you love Jesus. And you love Jesus because you believe in Jesus. So the question becomes then, if God doesn't love you, not blessing you, not taking care of you, is it because you don't love his son? that you've come for a cultural or even personal reason or even fear of the fire of hell. And if God would offer a third option of not torture in hell, but also not worshiping Jesus forever, your flesh would take it. If I could just live on an earth for all eternity, I'd, that'd be fine. I would take that. Have you come for some other reason except for Jesus Christ? Because he's the only reason. Do you believe that Jesus is God? This is why the world hates Jesus. This is why they attack him and even try to remove him from existence, turn him into just a great moral teacher, a disciple of Buddha, a man, a good man, but just a man. Because we're all fine with this idea of God existing in heaven as a grandfatherly Santa 
Claus type, building out presence. And if you're bad, a little spiritual pull. That's not God. God is holy. God is to be worshipped, and God will pour out wrath upon the darkness. It's what a really bright phosphorus light does to the darkness. It doesn't just push it away, does it? It evaporates it in a moment. When all there is left is light, that's what God is going to do. That final day, there will be no more darkness. Revelation says it, for he, God, will be their light. And they will worship him forever. And they'll have no need of sun, for they'll be with the sun. For the Father loves you because you have loved him. You love Jesus today. You love Jesus tomorrow morning and Tuesday. Something I've told students all the time, and I'll tell you adults as well. If you don't think about Jesus until you get back to church and the preacher reminds you, you may not love him as much as you think. And it's never a bad thing to increase your love for your Savior. It's never a bad thing to say, Lord, do I, do I love you enough? And you know what? It's not a bad thing to say, you know what? I don't. Let me love you some more right now. It's not a bad thing to do with your spouses and children. It's certainly not a bad idea with God. I'm not even sure if I love you enough. Let me love you some more just to be sure. Love Jesus and believe that he came from God. This separates you and I from the world. The world has no belief, which means they have no love. That's why we have the issues we have today. And finally, if you're sitting here and you're struggling with these things, you're struggling with what it means to love God or even love your neighbor, it could very well be that salvation is not in you, that you have not yet truly repented and believed and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have a head knowledge about Jesus, and it may be accurate, but accuracy, even to the Bible, doesn't save you. Repentance and belief save you. So before I close, I call upon you, and it would be good for all of us Christians to do this as well, to repent of your sin, turn from your wicked ways, and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him and Him alone. And you will be like Paul, who even at the threat of death can say, all this will do is send me on to my Lord. How can they hurt me? For my God has already secured my soul. Let your soul be secure in the love you have for Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, once again, I want to thank you for this precious throne. Lord, for a precious cross, for an empty tomb, for a Savior who wasn't just murdered for my sin, but was resurrected for my place in heaven. Lord, I cannot do these things. I can walk out of here feeling beat up about myself, wondering how to improve, or I can do what the Bible says, cast my cares to the foot of the cross and know that Jesus has already accomplished everything for me. All I lack today is my faith in Him. Even as a mature believer, all I lack is my faith in Him. Lord, increase it. Increase my belief. Increase our faith. Increase our love for this wonderful Savior. Lord, I want to pray for this place. There are precious saints in here who I have not only seen minister your gospel, but have ministered to me. But Lord, I also believe there may be some in here 
do not know you yet. And I commit them to your will. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, the Spirit blows where it wishes. You hear the sound, but you don't know where it's going. Lord, you know. And if there is to be salvation, Lord, you know when it's right and when it's time. So let this gospel awaken hearts and let the message pour forth into those hearts and let the response be repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord. And all of God's people said,